Here we are now with another episode of the Andrew Lake Podcast. My name is Dosta, and today I'd like to talk about pictures of you and Dorian Gray. This is my experimental commentary on the book The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. Have you read this book? Have you heard of this? It's quite famous. And right off the bat, I want to confirm and reinforce this point that this is an experimental analysis. It's personal and it's period bias. It's got a a blatant period bias. Normally when we do conversations on literature, the scholars and the academics need to be aware of these things, such as the culture of the time that the work was written in. What were the class systems like? What were the fashions of the day like? What were the pastimes and customs and rituals of the people at the time? And what was it that the author was trying to say about the time that they were living in with the work that they wrote? Now here we leave that aside and we say we're not doing a period specific or a analysis of when the work was originally written. And we're saying, how does this work relate to us now? How does it hold up in our current situation? How is it for us with our global culture and our modern day situations, customs, pastimes, class systems, technologies, civilization today? And as I read this book, The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, I found there's so many fascinating implications from the world we live in today to this book. Now, this book was written in 1890, and there are a few different versions, a few different publications. But more or less, we're going to stick to the, the general plot. The general plot is pretty solid. But I just found it so amazing to feel that the principles and the commentary and the insights that are in this book still hold up and still have something to say today, 130 years later. And that's where you come in. That's where it comes into the pictures of you. Have you ever thought about pictures of you? Do you know what a picture of you is? Philosophically speaking. We can also say, do you know what a picture of you is psychologically speaking or experientially speaking? Now, chances are, if you're listening to this... Well, high chance you have the internet, for one thing. And if you have the internet, high chance you own a smartphone, which means in your possession, on your personal being, 
is a device which connects you to the internet and the rest of the world and plugs you into the global culture that is now emerging, that is currently in progress, in process, <laughs> to put it simply. And also on this phone you have a camera and a collection of photos. Now, if you have a smartphone, it's not guaranteed that you're necessarily connected to social media, but there is also a high chance of that as well. And the ones I'm concerned with most here are Facebook and Instagram. Instagram is a collection of photos, of images that say something about you. They're a profile of you through images which is received through the eyes of an audience on the other end. Now, the same thing is true with Facebook, but there's slightly different uh, nuances and differences between the, the experience of Facebook and Instagram. But even in the title itself, Facebook, just think for a moment about those two words as, in, as a compound word, as an individual word. Your face, who you are, how you appear, what you look like, your face, that's a big part of you, it's a big part of your life. And then book, well a book is a story, a book is a collection of narratives or characters or all sorts of things, there's so much that a book can be. And a picture is worth a thousand words, but also a thousand words is worth a thousand words. So even in the heading itself, Facebook, we have a lot there to contend with. There's a lot of implications for how you see yourself and how you're connected to it. Now consider for a moment that this collection of photos on your Instagram or your Facebook, these, how to say, photo albums or photo galleries, consider the difference between what it's like to scroll through those and to look at them as compared to scrolling to the, through the private photos on your phone. Now, if you have a collection of photos on your phone, there will be a difference. And imagine how different it would be if you had to say or connect the two and sync the both and there had to be no difference. Think of how differently you would take photos, what photos you would store. Now this selection process between the difference of the photos on your private phone and the photos you choose to present on your social media says something about you. It's entwined in you, in your self-image, in your public image, and even in many cases to your self-esteem, your sense of identity. And of course, I'm speaking broadly here because there's a wide variety of differences between how closely people are connected or even addicted to or even pathologized by 
these social media platforms. So I'm going to speak generally, I'm going to speak broadly, but whether you're addicted or a part-time user or only partially interested at all, there is always a selection process. Now, there's a lot that I have to say about the outrage or the negativity of these devices, these smartphones, what it does for your attention span, what it does for your eyesight, what it does with feeding the images of your mind or the content of your mind, how it changes your gratification, how it changes your hand movements, how it changes your ability to have a human touch, how it changes your gives you a sense of getting caught up in appearances. Now, there is another correlation. There's a further wider context that we can make from the difference between the photos in your private phone and the photos on your social media. Consider this. What is the difference between the photos, all of the photos that you have, both on your phone and on your social media, and the experience of what it was like to be present when those photos were taken. Just take one of those photos. Just choose one, hone in on it. Maybe it's your profile picture. Just think of a moment. Think of your profile picture and what that looks like. Now, there's an experience of what it's like for you to look at it now. And there's also an experience of what it was like for you to place that and post that on your social media. And then there's also the experience of the photo itself for other people. You don't know how they're going to be taking it. You don't know who's on the receiving end. And even more deeply than that, you experience that there is someone experiencing it on the other end. So this thing of how is someone else going to take it or how does it appear to others, that's actually an experience within you that comes back to you. And now all this considered, compare that to what it was like to be there at that exact moment when the photo was taken. Can you remember? Do you know who was there? Do you know what the air temperature was? Do you know how you felt? Do you know why you feel that it's a good representation of you as a profile picture? Do you realize that your profile picture says something about you? This whole thing of the difference between a photo and the experience of it it has, in many people's lives, overtaken the experience itself. And it's come to the point where they're in a situation and they are thinking and feeling, oh, I need to take a photo. This is a deep meme. This is a deep psychological tick that you need to become acutely aware of. You need to grapple with this. You need to deal with this. And this is the instinct to take a photo. Whenever you have that pull, that urge to say, 
Oh, I must pull out my phone and click what's happening now. Please take a photo of this. Please, I want this moment to last. Please, this is such a good moment. I don't want to forget. I want to have a memory. I want to have something that will trigger the memory. Now, of course, what I say to you is that this spoils the moment. And the best things in life, the most beautiful things in life, can't be photographed. The deepest memories in life don't need a photograph to be taken of them. And this as a habit to take out your phone and take a, take a picture, it, it forms a habit. It changes your relationship to the images in your mind and in your surrounds and your experiences and your memories. And really the cure is to say, I'm not going to take a photo. I'm going to have a memory in my mind. It's actually possible to remember things photographically. And if you can switch this trigger to say, every time, say, say this to yourself, every time I feel like I want to take a photo, I'm going to stop and make a mental note instead. And even if you have a piece of paper or a diary or something, you can write it down. If you're doing journaling, then you can say, these were my mental notes from today or this week or this month. And then you can review them and come back to them and reinforce them. But if you stop yourself from taking a photo and you say, I'm taking a mental photo and I'm going to engrave this into your eyes, into the eyes, into the memory, into the mind, then that's a skill that you can build up. That's something that can deeply change your relationship with your memories. So smartphones their effect on our psychology and our minds, uh, something we're going to talk more and more about. And social media, self-esteem, self-image, it's all connected. It's all got an influence on you. And this difference between your personal phone photos and your public phone photos, that says something about you. And the experience of profile viewing, viewing your own profile and then viewing someone else's, and this, this thing of being connected to the culture and how it influences you. We, we didn't even get into the... We can get into the, what it's like to be fed other people's images. What is it like to log on and have these algorithms feeding you things that are designed to addict you, to stay and keep you on longer. Now, there's many people who have spoken about this. There's so many people talking about this. There's many scientists and psychologists and all sorts of philosophers and people and modern-day speakers, cultural critics that are talking about this. So do a little bit more research. Find out who else is saying things about the addiction of these images that go into your mind. And the one thing that strikes me, and I'd like to be honest here, and I'd like to be frank, the one thing that, that strikes me is the sex. Now, sex is in our culture like so much more than never before. Very much more than 1890, as it was in the days of Dorian Gray. Now, even porn aside, let's leave porn out of it. So if we're just talking about Instagram, where there's no nudity and there's no graphic porn, there's no overt straight up porn, which is explicit, 
even within that, sex is everywhere. And it's not just for the guys, it's for the girls as well. There is a tendency for these women to... There's a, there's a carrot stick sort of reward system going on for these women who present themselves in a, in a sort of sexy way, in a sexualized manner. And this can change your relationship to yourself and how you present yourself, especially for these young women, because that's how they get the attention. And how you get this attention over your social media and how it changes with the nature of what you're posting, this is something that must be brought to our attention. And as for the guys, well, they can become frustrated they can become put into their minds. They can be fed with these, these stimulations, whether it's the bikini girl or the fashion girl or just the young girl or the beautiful girl. This all has an effect and this is very powerful stuff. And this is leaving aside porn. Now, porn in itself is, is even more of a, of a black hole because so much porn is available these days. Young people are getting these phones and with the click of a button, the world of porn opens up to them. And this is severely changing their sexual development at a younger and younger age. So these are things that we're going to come back to and we're going to consider as we talk about pictures of you and Dorian Gray. Now, Dorian Gray... We'll go through the plot, but the reason I make this correlation is because Dorian Gray has this story, or the plot, is around this picture of him. There's so many correlations between this picture and his actions and his morality and how he sees himself and how his friends see him and how his culture sees him. Does this culture see him as a good man? Does this culture see him as someone who's moral? Who's a gentleman? Or is he a little bit dark? Is he someone to be wary of? Is he someone to avoid? And the magic of this story is that there's a picture that changes and things happen. And he grapples with his self-image along with this literal image, the painting, the painting of Dorian Gray, and also his internal world. And that's exactly what's happening with you and your social media. That's exactly what's happening with these pictures on your Facebook and your Instagram. You have this image which is separate to you. It's a representation of you. And you're grappling with how it will be received, how many likes it will get, what sort of response it will cause. And this is all happening in your interior world. It's changing your emotions. It's changing your self-image. It's affecting your self-esteem. So as we go through the plot, and we talk about Dorian Gray, and how these things change for him, in his world, and what he does, just consider that this picture of him, that is in this story, is just like your profile picture. It's really a picture of you. 
So that's the meta thread. That's the thing to look out for. Now, there's a couple of themes that come up for Oscar Wilde. There's a few things you should know about him. There's a few other meta themes that occur in this Dorian Gray plot. So keep a lookout for them. They go something like this. There's romanticism. And as a subcategory in romanticism, we have beauty, youth, and art. So if you don't know what romanticism is, listen to Chopin's Nocturnes, which is piano music. And as soon as you hear that, you'll know exactly what romantic music is. Either that or you can listen to a Dvorak symphony. That's my recommendation. I love Dvorak. Or a Mahler symphony. Something like that. So Romanticism is a period around this time of when this book was written. And it's a time of the heart. It's a time of pathos. It's a time of emotions, nostalgia, yearning, these sorts of things. What is beauty? What is the beautiful thing? Where do we find beauty? Who is beautiful? How do we do something beautiful? What is youth? What do the youth have that the young don't? What is important from youth? What are the mistakes of youth? Do we need to come out of our youth? Can we hold on to our youth? Is youth even something you want to hold on to? And then, of course, the third trio of beauty, youth, and art is art. And art is very much core to the Romantic period. What is art? And on that note, I'd like to read the preface of pictures, The Picture of Dorian Gray, because this will really tie together the, the Romantic Beauty, Youth and Art trio or quadro. So this is the preface. The artist is the creator of beautiful things. To reveal art and conceal the artist is art's aim. The critic is he who can translate into another manner or a new material his impression of beautiful things. The highest, as the lowest form of criticism, is a mode of autobiography. Those who find ugly meanings in beautiful things are corrupt without being charming. This is a fault. Those who find beautiful meanings in beautiful things are the cultivated. For these there is hope. They are the elect to whom beautiful things mean only beauty. There is no such thing as a moral or an immoral book. Books are well written or badly written. That is all. The 19th century dislike of realism is the rage of Caliban seeing his own face in a glass. The 19th century dislike of romanticism is the rage of Caliban not seeing his own face in a glass. The moral life of man 
forms part of the subject matter of the artist, but the morality of art consists in the perfect use of an imperfect medium. No artist desires to prove anything. Even things that are true can be proved. No artist has ethical sympathies. An ethical sympathy in an artist is an unprodonable mannerism of style. No artist is ever morbid. The artist can express anything, everything. Thought and language are to the artist instruments of an art. Vice and virtue are to the artist material for an art. From the point of view of form, the type of all the arts is the art of the musician. From the point of view of the feeling, the actor's craft is the type. All art is at once surface and symbol. Those who go beneath the surface do so at their peril. Those who read the symbol do so at their peril. It is the spectator and not life that art really mirrors. Diversity of opinion about a work of art shows that the work is new, complex and vital. When critics disagree, the artist is in accord with himself. We can forgive a man for making a useful thing as long as he does not admire it. The only excuse for making a useless thing is that one admires it intensely. All art is quite useless. So right there, we have a lot to unpack. There is the romantic yearn for art and its meaning. And this acknowledgement that art is symbolic, it's a representation, and it's not quite as it appears. And there's a lot of insight there into the nature of beauty. And one of the key things that I got from this preface is that the artist, the idea of the autobiography, and the artist and the art, uh, they're not inseparable. And he says, of course, that the you, you, good art in it doesn't reveal it. It hides the artist, so the process is hidden, and there's a separation between the artist and the art. But there is still a there's there's always a connection. There's only some. And this is the romantic yearn. The, the romantic knows that there's that it's personal. Art is personal. A creation is personal. Beauty is a personal experience. So Oscar Wilde is implying that there by, in a, in a funny way, saying that it's not, but he's also pointing out that this is something that he is content with himself. And you've got to ask yourself, in this story, is there an autobiographical component to it? And of course, I know nothing about Oscar Wilde, so we'll never know. And really, in all stories, from what I've learned from writing and reading, there's always an element of the author. And it's, it's impossible to... From one angle, it's impossible to distinguish the two because you're really saying that the story of the... That the fictional story is the story of the author, but not in a literal sense. 
It's more in a grand, complex, far-off sense because anything that comes out of you has, it, has in at least some way been a part of you. It's simply a matter of identity and a matter of what the artist would hold to themselves and how they relate to the work. There's another thing here which is that he says that a diversity of opinion about a work shows how complex it is. And this comes up a few times of in the form of controversy. So what is controversial and what is cutting edge and what is breaking into new territory always has this energy or this tension between this. You can only have an argument about something that's new and, and changing and vital. So that's a theme that comes up again and again. And he even says it at some points about a book. When, he, when a book references a book, that's a key literature, literature technique. And there are times in this book when he is talking about his book himself. And we'll get to that. It's particularly when our lead character, Dorian Gray, is reading a certain book. And as he reads the book, it's not exactly clear whether we are reading the same book or not. And it has occurred to me that we are reading the same book. There is an idea that the, the book in question is about the book itself. So, that's the preface. And romanticism, beauty, youth and art are things to watch out for. And the idea of meaning and what is meaningful and what means something, that also comes up a lot. And also the corruption of the younger, the corruption of other people and what it means to influence another people, that also comes up. And before we launch into our plot, I'd also like to add that there's a wit to Oscar Wilde, which is so charming. It's so beautiful. And this is why people read Oscar Wilde. This is why a lot of romantics are drawn to him. And it's it, wit. Like, what is wit? It's, it's this combination between insight and humor. And you somehow, you sort of laugh, but you also scratch your head and think, oh, yeah, that's right. And I've got a quick, few quick quotes here for examples of wit. And these are things that I had a little bit of a giggle at when, he, uh, when I read them. So these are plucked at random through, from throughout the, throughout the entire novel. So here we go. Quote, If a man is a gentleman, he knows quite enough. And if he is not a gentleman, whatever he knows is bad for him. End quote. <laughs> I don't even know what that means, <laughs> but it just makes me laugh. Okay, here's another one. This is a this is a more humorous one. This is when uh, one guy is talking to another at a at a party. So Sir Thomas is talking to the Duchess, and uh, he, here we go. Quote: They say that when a good American dies, they go to Paris, chuckled Sir Thomas, who had a large wardrobe of humorous cast-off clothes. Really? 
And where do the bad Americans go when they die? inquired the Duchess. They go to America, murmured Lord Henry. <laughs> I just find that so funny. End quote, of course. <laughs> okay, here's another one. Would you like to hear another one? I love these. Quote, Ah, Lord Henry, I wish you would tell me how to become young again. He thought for a moment. Can you remember any great error that you committed in your early days, Duchess? He asked, looking across her table. A great many, I fear, she cried. Then commit them over again, he said gravely. To get back one's youth, one has merely to repeat one's follies. A delightful theory, she exclaimed. I must put it into practice. A dangerous theory came from Sir Thomas's tight lips. Lady Agatha shook her head. I could not help being amused. Mr. Erskine listened. Yes, he continued. That is one of the great secrets of life. Nowadays, most people die of a sort of creeping common sense and discover when it is too late that the only thing one never regrets are one's mistakes. <laughs> let, me, let me just say that again. That's so juicy. Yes, he continued. That is one of the great secrets of life. Nowadays, most people die of a sort of creeping common sense and discover when it is too late that the only thing one never regrets are one's mistakes. <laughs> I wonder what age he was when he had that thought. And I wonder what age you were when you had it, or when you'll have it. <laughs> have you had that thought yet? Have you, have you sensed that your mistakes are the things you don't regret? <laughs> okay, here's another little one. The reason we all like to think so well of others is that we are all afraid of ourselves. The basis of optimism is sheer terror. End quote. Do you have to believe that other people are good in order to believe that you are good? That's a nice little nugget of thought. And okay, one last one. Here we go. This is about... This is Lord Henry talking about couples and they're talking about, they're gossiping about who's going to get with who at a dinner party. And he says, quote, What nonsense people talk about happy marriages, exclaimed Lord Henry. A man can be happy with any woman as long as he does not love her. End quote. <laughs> Have you known that the, the people that you love are the ones that cause you the most harm? They call you, cause you the most unhappiness. <laughs> and it's so beautiful how Oscar Wilde has sum, summed that up in just a, a few moments, in few words, in this charming character. Basil, the painter, the artist, is in his studio working on his latest piece. And with him is Lord Henry, or Harry, as he calls him. And these two characters are having a conversation about the artwork and about friendship. And 
It's quite a charming little scene to have these two people going back and forth, these two characters, Basil and Harry. And Basil doesn't want to show Harry the piece that he's working on. He doesn't want to let him see this this painting that he's done, that he's working with, that he's touching up and doing little things for, because he feels that there's something in the painting that will reveal too much about his relationship with the subject. Now, there's something funny there. There's a funny correlation there between that and someone taking your phone. You know that old joke when you hand someone your phone and to show them a photo or something and you say, just don't swipe back. Don't swipe back through the photos. They're private. Give it to me. Don't hold it for too long. This sort of, (laughs) that sort of thing. Well, in many cases, that's a joke and it's quite funny. And in but in other cases, it really is. It is actually private. There are things on there which you wouldn't want people to see. And it's not that they're necessarily graphic, though that in some people's cases that might be the case, but it's that when you take a photo, it does reveal something about you. It reveals that you were in a certain place, that a certain person was there. And the, the moment is captured, in, a, in not in its entirety, but at least says something. Now, when it comes to painting, this is a very different game. This book was written and set in a very different age to ours, where photos and cameras were not in everyone's pocket. They weren't available at the quick of a whim in a snap of a second, in a flash of a fingers. So a painting, when a painter does a painting of someone, that is a big thing. They form a relationship with their subject. They spend time with their subject. They get to know the person. And of course I'm speaking strictly of portraiture, as this is a portrait that Basil is doing and Harry is trying to talk about or trying to see and discussing with him in his studio. And the painter really, a good painter can capture something of the, it's not just realism. There's a place, there's a school of art, which is realism, but there's also this school of art, which is what can you capture that's beyond the the surface level, what's the deeper level. And there are certain artists that are very good at this. And when they successfully pull off an expression of their subject and you look at the painting, there's this strange sensation where there's multiple emotions and multiple feelings happening. And it's not quite like they're smiling. It's not quite like that they're sad. It's not like they're optimistic or hopeful or they're, they're nihilistic or beaten up by the world. The, these all these certain things, these characteristics, these emotional swirlings that occur within a person, they can be captured in one image. Now, some artists' approach is, well, I think this is a happy person, so I'll, in essence, they're a happy person, so I'll take a, I'll do their portraiture as they are happy, or I think they're tortured or whatever. Whatever they choose, it could be happy or tortured or sad or any list of things that an artist can choose to focus on. But some artists 
can capture multiple things at once and they have that depth. Now, a painting costs a lot of money. A painting is an investment. And these days, if you were getting your portraiture done in the days of Basil and Harry and Dorian Gray, it was a big deal. This painting would be worth something. And Basil is talking to Harry and saying, I don't think I even want to exhibit it. I don't even want you to see it. I don't want anyone to see it. And Harry's like, well, why? What on earth? And of course, Basil feels that there's an intimacy between him and his subject that will be revealed, which is that there's something, it's, it's very subtle. It's very subtle. And it's beyond words, really, because it's, you can say, well, how could you have painted this person? It's sort of like if you paint someone naked, then you've seen them naked. But in this case, this portraiture, it's not a nude. But that's, the, that's one of the ideas of, or one of the intimacies of the nude paintings, is that you've actually sat in the room with that person and you've looked and stared at them for hours on end as they're naked. So the nude school of art has something there and there's an there's a implication which this sensitive man, this artist, this romantic man, Basil, is aware of and he's wary of. And he doesn't want the world to find out about his relationship with Dorian Gray. Now, this is a larger theme of the book, which is that there's implications of homosexually erotic sort of admirations between certain characters. And it's never explicit. It's only ever implied in the book. And probably if you turn to a scholar or an academic, they'll be able to put a clear boundary around this and actually explain what's happening. But my impression is that it's left in in the in murky waters. It's not exactly <clears throat> pardon me. It's not exactly clear whether there is a homoerotic relation between each of the characters or not. But in this scene where Basil is saying I don't know if I want to. Pardon me. <coughs> Pardon me. In this scene where he's saying, I don't know if I want to show this, you can get the feeling that there's a there's a romantic interest. And it wouldn't be a romantic interest of homosexuality like it is today. Romance and romanticism, these are different things. Make sure you distinguish the two. Romance is like an intimate partner, an emotional connection, a longing for wanting to be with someone and hold someone. And it's closely related to romanticism. Romanticism can be applied to a larger context like poetry and, and nature and life and beauty in general. So romanticism doesn't just apply to a single individual of the opposite sex, or in this case, the same sex. But a romantic interest does. So that's a little difference there. And it's not exactly clear which one is happening here at this moment. But what is clear is that there's something about this painting which means a lot to Basil. So they talk back and forth. And 
Of course, it comes out that this painting is of Dorian Gray, and it becomes more and more clear that Basil is a great admirer of this man, of this, well, young man, almost like a boy. He's very young, and that's part of it. So Harry ends up saying, I really need to meet this guy. And there's a sort of a old sibling thing of, no, I don't want you to meet him because then he'll steal you. He'll steal you as a friend from me. And this is a thing that happens. I, I see it most clearly in siblings when there's a brother and a sister or two brothers, two sisters, and they're similar in age. And one of them makes friends with someone either the older or the younger, doesn't matter so much. It's There's always multiple variations on any scenario. But in that situation, the, the one that has the friend has this urge to, oh no, don't become friends with my sibling. You're my friend. You're not his friend. Did that, did that ever happen to you as a kid? You had that moment where, but I want a friend to myself. He needs to be all my friend. <laughs> so... This this dynamic is happening between Basil and Harry with Dorian Gray because Basil adores him. and He's just so in love with this young, youthful man, this good-looking man of Dorian Gray. And at the end of the chapter, Dorian Gray turns up and he's at the studio and Harry gets to meet him. So... It's out of Basil's hands, and they do meet. They do become friends. So, the plot continues, and Dorian Gray sits to have his portraiture done, another session, so there's multiple sittings when a portraiture is done, and Basil starts doing his painting, doing his work, and he sort of gets lost in it, and Lord Henry, Harry, is is there, and of course Dorian Gray gets to sit still, and he says, well, I have to sit still, so I can't talk much, and I don't feel like talking much anyway, so you just do all the talking, so Henry sort of has this this open field to to do a bit of a lecture and to make an impression on this young man. And and Basil is saying some funny things about, you know, the influence of one person or another. And this is a quote which helps to illustrate this. Quote, There is no such thing as a good influence, Mr. Gray, All influence is immoral, immoral from the scientific point of view. Why? Because to influence a person is to give him one's own soul. He does not think his natural thought or burn with his natural passions. His virtues are not real to him. His sins, if there are such things as sins, are borrowed. He becomes an echo of someone else's music, an actor of a part that has not been written for him. The aim of life is self-development, to realize one's nature perfectly. That is what for each of us is here for. People are afraid of themselves nowadays. They have forgotten the highest of all duties, 
the duty that one owes to oneself. Of course they are charitable, they feed the hungry and they clothe the beggar, but their own souls starve and are naked. Courage has gone out of our race. Perhaps we never really had it. The terror of society, which is the basis of moral, the terror of God, which is the secret of religion, these are the two things that govern us. And yet, continued Lord Henry, I believe that if one man were to live out his life fully and completely, were to give form to every feeling, expression, to every thought, reality, to every dream, I believe that the world would gain such a fresh impulse of joy that we would forget all the maladies of medievalism and return to the Hellenic idea, to something finer, richer, and the Hellenic idea it may be, but the bravest man among us is afraid of himself. End quote. There's something quite strange about one person listening while another person does a very large amount of talking. And it becomes even more strange when the person who's doing the large amount of talking is saying that it's bad for someone to influence another, to give ideas to another. And this, in this character, this Oscar Wilde character of Harry, of Lord Henry, is this beautiful yearning, this beautiful cry, this sort of like a motivational speech. The aim of life is self-development, to realize one's nature perfectly. He's saying if only we could live fully, if only we could let go of all the ideas that were fed to us, if only we could really hit in and and synchronize ourselves with our natural thought, our natural passions, make our virtues real to us, make our sins real to us. And this is just a beautiful thing. This is a beautiful passage where Harry is talking about these romantic ideas and these bringing it back to the personal. And of course, at one point, Dorian Gray says, stop, stop. You know, this is too much. You're overloading me. You're blowing my mind. And from there, there's this opening up of the, this relationship between Lord Henry, his view of the world, his passion, and his critique of what man has done to themselves or what people do to influence each other with their ideas and how that leads them astray. And that this, this, this character, this Lord Henry wit, draws Dorian Gray to him. And these characters form this bondage. They also go on to talk about friendship and more about beauty and the wonder of life. And even to a point they talk about hopefulness and ignorance and these sorts of ideals. And there's another quote here which sort of gets more to the point of what it means to be your own man. And that is this 
in a in a way that the word is hedonism and hedonism means different things in different ages typically it just means sex drugs and rock and roll or pleasuring yourself through the body and through the senses and in a sense that is what harry is saying here but in a more nuanced way in a more romantic way so in the climax of this talk between Harry and Dorian Gray, there's this quote, there's this passage which I'll read, which sort of sums up this idea of hedonism as a antidote to living a full life or a, or a solution to the question of how do we live a full life? Quote, Live. Live the wonderful life that is in you. Let nothing be lost upon you. Be always searching for new sensations. Be afraid of nothing. A new hedonism. That is what our century wants. You might be its visible symbol. With your personality, there is nothing you could not do. The world belongs to you for a season. The moment I met you, I saw that you were quite unconscious of what you really are of what you really might be. There was so much in you that charmed me that I felt I must tell you something about yourself. I thought how tragic it would be if you were wasted. End quote. Now what that means for our day and age. You might be its visible symbol that line brings us back to this symbolic representation of your photos of you on the internet and what it's like to live as you. And really, in, a, in another way of thinking about that, this grabbing the world and seeing the world and making the most of your charm, that's really what the internet should be. It should be this representation of your charm. It's the representation of the best parts of you. It's the best expression of you saying, hey, this is me. Look at how wonderful I am. And so that's another way of looking at this correlation between the, the images in our smartphones and how we feel about life. So Basil and Dorian Gray end up becoming good friends and they go to the opera together and they see some things and they really uh they really hit it off and it's a it's a friendship that really is is core to the plot of the story And it's always going to be a paradox that someone tells you, someone is telling you not to listen to their own ideas, which in itself is an idea. And this corruption of, well, one way of looking at it is that, that Harry is corrupting Mr. Gray because he's feeding him so many ideas. And the ideas are so complex, complicated and so deep reaching about life and what it means to live, these sorts of things, that the young and impressionable Dorian Gray can't make sense of it 
for himself yet because he just doesn't have enough life experience. So there's something about youth which is impressionable. And this idea of being malleable by the people that are older and more experienced is an interesting relationship between youth and the aged or wisdom. Now, one would say, one way of looking at it is that, well, they're passing on their wisdom. People have said that before. You can say, are you influencing me with your ideas? Or are you passing on your wisdom? Is there a difference there? Can you distinguish the two? So at the end of the second chapter, there is still a little bit of a hint of whether there's a homoerotica or sexual tension happening between these these three characters, these three men. Or at least in my mind, maybe it's just my dirty mind that I need to get out of the gutter. But there's definitely something there about these these strong draws between the characters. And what it's like for someone to influence someone at a at a certain age, at a certain time in their development. But of course, no sooner than this has happened, then Dorian Gray turns up at the Harry's place, or they get together someplace again, and it turns out that the Dorian Gray has fallen in love, and he's head over heels in love with this, this actress, and he starts raving about her, about how beautiful she is, how wonderful she is, how incredible she is. This, this Sybil Vane is her name. And of course, Lord Henry is thinking, wow, what is going on here? This is, an, this is an interesting case. I would like to make a case study out of this. Lord Henry has these ideas of, well, this is the young love. This is romanticism. This is, this is beauty in its test study. This is the, the real-life drama of romance. So Lord Henry takes it very, he has all sorts of things to say about it. But basically, he's fallen in love with this, this actor, and he's even proposed to marry her. Sybil Vane, Silby Vane, and she acts, she's very young, she's only 14 or 15 years old, something like this. She's very young, very pretty, and she acts in all sorts of plays, and it appears that Dorian Gray is in love more with the idea of her and the roles that she plays than her herself. And there's even a point when Lord Henry says, well, when is she Sybil Vane? And he's saying, well, you know, she's, she's in Hamlet one night, she's in Romeo Juliet the next night, she's in, you know, all these famous big-time stage shows. But when is she ever herself? And he says, well, never. And she's amazing for that reason. So being in love with the idea of someone rather than the person themselves. That is a key staple of the romantic heart. And how that works is you see someone once or you cop a glance at someone or there's this short interaction with them. 
And then all of a sudden, this giant story comes out like, oh, I'm going to do this with them. Oh, we can do this. And oh, I have all these ideas. Oh, and she's so wonderful that she does this. This is the romantic. You can tell. <laughs> I think I think my laughter reveals too much about me sometimes, which is that, of course, I am a romantic, which is why I love talking about this. I can easily get all sorts of ideas about what I would want to do with a woman and I will hold hands and we'll look at the sunset and I would buy her flowers and oh I'd take her to this place and I'd show her this music and oh we talk about these books oh oh yes oh I'm such a romantic but this story this mental mind thing I don't want I don't want to say mental mind chatter because it's really Let's call it fluff. Maybe fluff is a better word for it. But that's a staple of the romantic. And it's a trap because, of course, of course, at some point, the picture is going to pop. The bubble is going to pop. There's going to be a clash between how that person really is and their idea of them. Now, there's an element of that in all relationships. Everyone has a front that they put on when they're in new relationships, when they meet new people, and over time, who you really are comes out. Broadly speaking, that's a that seems like a bit of a rabbit hole which we could unpack and discuss at length, but for the purposes of this conversation, let's just put it crudely that there's a there's a first face and then there's the real face. That process for some relationships is very dramatic. For others, it's not so dramatic. For some people, they are well integrated and they do have a well way of presenting who they really are. So there's a spectrum here. Let's not flatten the the entire cosmos of human experience and the complexities of every human being on the face of the planet to have ever lived. But in the case of the romantic, this is a big difference. It's a big jump. The idea of someone as opposed to how they really are. So, this actor. I mean, there's something in acting as well, which is that real life, an an actor needs to know this difference, which is... The difference between real life and symbolism or the representation. And no one has to contend with this more than the actor. No one has it as close to their heart, a close as close to their being as the actor. In my mind, there's really there's four or five levels to acting and how close it gets to the actor. And acting theory, or the theory of what it, what it means to be an actor when you go to acting school, is, is richly full of where the line is drawn between reality and representation. And the, these four or five things that I see, it's, it's sort of like, on one level you have this, this parroting, now, if you parrot something, a parrot is someone who just says the words and there's nothing behind them. If you're just saying the dialogue and it doesn't mean anything, then you're a parrot. 
And then on another level, you have expression and you have the emotional embodiment. So if you're an actor, you first have to learn the lines and you have to learn how to parrot it and just at least to be able to say the words correctly. And then you have to learn the emotional content and the significance to the words. And and in that way, you're expressing the words. And then in a middle sort of level, you have acting. And acting in it is, is, is itself is, is not as deep as it goes. It's sort of somewhere between, it's, it's beyond parroting and expressing, but it's not as high as these next two stages in my mind, which is beyond acting, there's, there's entering. Now, when you enter into a role, you are becoming the role. This is what's called Methodist acting. And they start to blur the line between what is real and what is not. So when you, when you have a Methodist actor, the director will be saying, okay, so this scene that we're shooting today is a scene that is angry. So I'm going to go to my actors and do things to piss them off. I'm going to not give them their coffee or I'm going to wake them up too early or I'm going to say things to piss them off or get, get someone to stir them up. And then on another day, it might be, well, this is the love scene. So we're going to have some privacy for them. We're going to have them together. We're going to actually be romantic and make things nice for them. Maybe we'll buy them flowers or get your co-actor to, you know, it, it's not really necessarily the director's job. But whoever, however the movie scene works or the stage scene works, this is Methodist acting. So when they go out to shoot the scene and they're saying, oh, I'm angry at you, they literally are angry. They really are angry. And that's entering. And then beyond that, beyond this parroting, expressing, acting, and entering, there's being. And this is a very high-level form of acting. And you see it in someone like Marlon Brando, where he's not acting. And he's not experiencing something inside this web of a script and a scene and a movie set. He's actually being. There's this famous movie called Apocalypse Now where they were trying to film it and he was one of the main roles in it. And he wouldn't say any of the dialogue. He wouldn't cooperate with any of the schedule. He wouldn't do anything. And yet somehow he was still a part of this movie because, of course, by then, by the time he got here, to this point, he was Marlon Brando. And it was like, well, if you need to have Marlon Brando in your film, you film him as he wants to do. So Marlon Brando's job was to turn up on set and to be Marlon Brando. And that is being. That is an actor who doesn't make this distinction between life and symbolism or reality and representation. And there's very few actors that really get away with that in the history of movies or in stage plays. There's, there's, really, there's really only a few. I mean, to, to, to be an actor, you need to go through the mechanics of it. You need to do the, the parroting, the expressing learn acting, learn how to enter a role. So, yeah, the, the, these cultural icons, like these cultural actors or these 
super famous actors like Marlon Brando. They're really a rare case. Now, in the case of Sybil Vane and Dorian Gray, and where Dorian Gray has fallen in love with this idea, Sybil Vane isn't acting. She is being. She's not parroting. She's not expressing. She's not entering the role. It's quite simply that she's got the young person's luck or the ignorance of youth on her side, and she is acting in the conventional meaning of the word by being. She is doing. She doesn't know enough about acting for it to ruin her. She doesn't know enough about the mechanics of acting for it to be a burden of her. Now, acting school is is this thing where Say I say to you, you know, act natural. As soon as I tell you to act natural, it's going to be near impossible for you to act natural because you're going to have this thing like saying, oh, oh, how do I act natural? Act natural, yes, act natural, yes, this is normal, yes, this is normal, yes, 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 this this is how I normally do it, this is how I always do it. How do I normally do it? This is how I normally do it, this kind of thing. This kind of mind tickery, getting the mind in the way, is, is what ruins acting. And acting school is the process of, having that on you because you need to be able to act on a cue, on a whim, perform on a whim, but without all that mind mess around. So by the fate of the turn of chance meetings and how one heart romantically opens to this idea of another person and this young innocent girl falls for this man, the Sybil Vane has this acting career, this moment where real life clashes with what she has been doing on the stage up until this point. And just after Dorian Gray has told all his friends about how he loves this beautiful young woman and he's going to marry her, and he's said all these, <laughs> well, his idea is he's going to take her out of acting and bring her into high society. <laughs> how It just sort of shows how crazy it is. Like, do, do you really think that's going to work? You're going to bring this lower class girl into high society and she's just going to sit around all day in fancy dress wear and be your lover? How long do you think that will last? <laughs> it's sort of... it. it 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 makes me the the larger picture there is that oh we we'll be so in love that we'll be able to change our lives around for each other love conquers all and nothing will get in our way no none of the practicalities will get in the way that's another big staple of the romantic so after dorian gray has said all this to his friends and there's also a story a part in the story about how in love Sybil Vane is with this this Dorian Gray, and she calls him Prince Charming. How in love they are. He takes his friends to see her perform the very night after they've been engaged to be married. Now, there's also a significance to this this Prince Charming label that the lady that uh, Sybil Vane gives to Dorian Gray, and that is that she also has this idea of him. So it's, it's, it's two ways. She's thinking of him as this character in this play. She's not using his real name. He's not relating to him as a real person. 
she's also got this idea and she's thinking that this life situation is exactly the same as all the plays and the performances that she's been acting in. And of course, she realizes at this point that there is a difference between real life and representation and all the meaning for her and all the significance for her and her roles is completely crushed. She sees how fake it is. She sees how contrived it is. She sees how the play has nothing to do with real life. And of course, she puts on a terrible performance. There's no way that she can just switch with this new, this new world experience hasn't been integrated for her. She hasn't dealt with it and she hasn't brought it into her acting technique. She's still young. She's only 14 or 15, something like this. And so the, the inexperienced actor can't take this difference between real love or supposed real love that she has with Dorian Gray, Prince Charming, and the difference between that and what it's like to play someone in love like in Romeo and Juliet on the stage. So after the show, Dorian's friends are like, wow, that was terrible. She's very beautiful, but she can't act. Let's be honest. At least he has friends which are good enough to be honest enough and say, wow, that was a stinker. <laughs> Maybe these days it would be a little bit of a, oh, she really can't act, but I don't want to tell Dorian this because he's engaged to marry her. <laughs> but of course, he knows, he realizes it too. Everyone sees it's as bright as day that she's had something go wrong. And so he goes to her after the show and says, what happened? You've broken my love. The whole thing is off. And he calls off the marriage. He says, I don't want to be anything. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Now, I wonder if there's a correlation here between meeting someone on a dating website, these photos that they have represented of them, and then they turn up and you actually meet the person. Now, I've never really done, uh, yeah, I've never done any dating websites <laughs> Maybe it will come to that at some point. <laughs> Who knows what the future holds? I don't want to say too much about my current situation, but I can imagine how there would be a lot of very awkward moments. And, and it's, a, it's a sort of cultural joke. I mean, it's, it's obviously come up. It's enough in the popular culture. You know, you can see advertisements that make fun of this joke, of this moment where you turn up and you're nothing like or the person's nothing like the pictures or nothing like they were online. So that's similar to what's going on here. And of course she's heartbroken. She's so much, she was so much in love with Prince Charming. And it was such a pure love. It was a first love. And she's so there's something to be said about tragedy and she's so in love with him that she gives him the ultimate tragedy which is that she kills herself now she's got an older brother and this is a uh, part of the story 
And the older brother had vowed to make sure that this wedding goes ahead and everything works out properly, everything works well. But he had been scheduled to be on the ship to sail to Australia the the very day that she commits suicide. So there's this character who has vowed to take care of Sybil Vane and she's committed suicide after this this wedding or this this engagement has has gone sour after a very short time and and Dorian Gray he's sort of he's left in the dark and the the story goes that he that night goes home and stays up late and thinks about her and thinks about her performance and then stays up all night and he's really pondering it over considering what am i going to do and he he goes through this mental process this dark contemplation of how am I going to deal with this situation that I'm in? And the tragedy is that he says to himself, okay, I'm going to make it up with her. It doesn't matter that she's a terrible actor. She's just young and ignorant. I'm going to marry her and I'm going to go ahead with the engagement. And he does all this. In the morning, there's this letter. It's beautifully written how this story unfolds, how this plot happens. A letter turns up from Harry trying to notify... Dorian Gray of his of this suicide of this tragedy that's happened but he doesn't open the letter he just hasn't had it had the chance to look at it yet he hasn't paid it any attention so when you know what's happening in the plot I I probably should have said spoiler alert for this this series but this this episode but I assume you've already you're at least already going to know what's going to happen and you're going to find out so spoil spoiler alert if you didn't already know It's this beautiful scene where the letter is in the room and yet he still decides to make up with her. And you're thinking, no, just read the letter. If only you could have done this, you would have saved yourself. So now there's another big thread, which is the the theme of the book or the title of the book, which I haven't thread so far. Back, let's let's just back up in our plot for a bit. Back in the painting studio where... Dorian is getting his portraiture done and Harry is talking to him. There's a there's a key thing which is this moment where Dorian vows to or he wishes or he wills that the painting would grow old and he would stay young. In a nutshell there's a whole lot of different things about the the youth. If only he could retain his youth and the, the painting would wither and die away. And it turns out that this he, his wish is granted. Be careful what you wish for, goes the story. Because when he finds out and when he does, when he does this terrible thing of breaking off the, the wedding with, breaking off the engagement with Sybil Vane, and he finds out that she's killed herself, and he he's sort of he's, he's sort of cold and quick to get over it then the painting changes there's something that that happens to the portrait there's something that happens to how he is portrayed in the portraiture a man's face shows his soul when a man sins a line happens there's a truth that can be seen in someone's eyes 
And in this situation, it appears that the sin or the darkness of Dorian Gray is actually going on to the face of the portraiture, the face of the painting, not of the man himself. So there's a back and forth between Dorian Gray and Basil about how quickly he's moved on from this tragedy. Because he sort of just brushes it under the rug like, oh, don't, don't talk about the past. And he's like, well, you call, the, you call yesterday the past? Or did you, did you really go out? I heard you were out at the opera the other night. And he was like, yes, I was at the opera. You know, like as if you would go out to the opera and see something when your fiancé has just been, your fiancé has just died. And so this difference in the goodness of a person and their response to the events in their life and how they are is starting to emerge in this character. And he retains his youth, he retains his good looks while the painting changes. And there's this moment where, of course, at this point, Dorian Gray is hip to the fact that the painting has changed. He's, he's realized that something's going on, that his wish that he would retain his youth and his sins would be transferred to the painting has come true. So he's covered it up. And when Basil is in, in, his, in his apartment, in his house, having this back and forth with him, he's saying, no, you can't see it. And he hides it and he says he has to put it away. So they part ways and Dorian Gray makes plans to have the painting moved into a private room. And it's quite a big thing to have the painting moved because it's quite heavy and it's a, you know it's a delicate piece of art and which room to put it in how to store it and how to keep it covered you know you need a professional paint handler to come so the hiding of a secret the hiding of your true nature takes effort and it has to involve others and there's something about having a part of you hidden away, an image of you hidden away that you don't want to see. And that would be the photos on your phone that you don't want anyone to see. Or in fact, more deeply than that, it would be the photos of you that don't exist. The photos that weren't taken in the times when you were being immoral or dark or selfish having an inappropriate emotional response to a significant event in your life. Now, how to respond emotionally to something is a big kettle of fish to fry. But we all have these moments. We all have this darkness. These things that we don't want others to see about us. And these are the images that we keep in ourselves. They might not be literally in a room behind a locked door, like it was for Dorian Gray. But for us, they're inside us. They're in our memories. We all have to live with the memories that we've got. We all have to live with the visions that we've seen. Everything that goes into our eyes, every situation that we find ourselves with, has to be contended with. It has to be integrated into our perspective and also into our self-image. So it's quite a 
moment for Dorian to have this painting locked away and to have this fiancé killed and for him to not be involved as an inquest into, you know, who was involved and who was there. And he gets off lucky because no one really knew him. No one could really recognize him enough. And he wasn't around the theaters enough for someone to know him. And she'd always use this name Prince Charming. So they couldn't find a real name. And he he seems to get off the hook. And, of course, the brother's overseas, so he's not around to take revenge. And... This is a theme that comes up again and again as the painting changes and as Dorian Gray starts to have his youth change and his life experiences change, which is getting off the hook, getting off scot-free. So the next few moments in the plot will, or the rest of the plot will, reveal that some more. Some years pass, and the event of Sybil Vane's death moves out of Dorian Gray's conscious mind as he focuses on other things, and his life takes a few turns. Most notably, he has this book which Harry has given him, And he becomes more and more interested in it. He becomes engulfed in it, in its ideas, in its descriptions. And he reads it over and over again. And it keeps coming up with this idea of his new hedonism, his new way of discovering his fresh, youthful approach to romanticism and to art and to beauty. And there's something in that. There's something that is... The idea of someone else, as in the book, influencing how one sees the world. Now, I'm guilty of that myself. Of course, I've got these books which I love and I read over and over again, and I'm always talking about them. And so many of the ideas that are in them propel me. And if you were to stop me and to say, well, you realize you're just following this this book and you're not thinking for yourself... Well, one answer I might give is, well, that's because I think they're fantastic ideas. They're wonderful things to be a part of. They have a beautiful way of showing life. They they speak to values and virtues which I aspire to, which I hope to see in me. And in the case of Dorian Gray, it's not exactly clear what this book is, but it's a little bit dark, a little bit edgy. And it's got some things which are, which I think would be a little bit questionable to the rest of his class or the high society which he is. Because, of course, he's in the rich, he's the rich part of society. He's in the rich town. So he carries that with him. And time goes on and he fills his days with different things and some of them are a, a, a bit dark, like he, he starts to dress in a disguise and go to these sort of off-the-beaten places. And he has these absences which the people of his class sort of create these rumors out of. They never really know what's happening, but he goes into some dark places and he keeps the key with him 
the key to the door which locks the painting. And that's the symbol of your real self always being with you, even if you distract yourself from it. And even if you somehow, in a way, acknowledge that it's part of you, because he goes in, what he keeps doing is he keeps going in and looking at this painting and then also staring at a mirror. And this contrast, this dramatic difference between the painting and what he sees in the mirror, he says, is this sort of sharpness to the senses. It brings this edge to him. There's a sort of laughter and cruelty to it, which he enjoys. So the, his true nature is somehow known to him, but also not known to him. And he can't really see how to live otherwise. And he has this sort of pity for himself. And it's possible to pity yourself and still be feeling like you're responsible for your own virtues, for your own values. And that's a complex web. That's a f- strange dynamic to have going on throughout your, your life while you have these things. And, and people's impressions of him in this period of his life, as he grows older, is that he's, he's more like a connoisseur of art and turning art into life. And he's trying to merge this beauty and this representation into his real life so that Dorian Gray is the artwork. He is a real artwork. And there's a difference there between these younger, high-class citizens and their impressions of him and what he's really like. And if we look at this this scene of Dorian Gray looking at the picture of him and then looking at himself in the mirror, well, that's exactly what we have now. Don't say you've never done this. Don't say you ever have this impulse, which is to look at the photos of you on your phone. How often do you look at the photos of you? And what's that experience like? What is that as a contrast to how you really see yourself? There's a tension there. And simply it's put in the fact that you care about how you're represented, you're, you're represented in, on your social media, on the internet, or in the public sphere. How often do you check, oh, what does my profile picture look like? Oh, what was this picture that I put up? How often does that have a pull or a push? And you can even then go a step further and contrast it to other people's pictures. Oh, look at these person's pictures. Now, some people have real, real professional photographers do their Instagram and do their profiles. These are the people that have put put it into turned it into a career and then it's really now they, they, well, they call them influencers so with enough followers that's the incentive is that you can get money for this your image can be sold and this is the equivalent i say of the high class of 1890 which is the class of dorian gray these days class distinctions there's well, we can do it in the traditional way of like who makes the most money or where your income comes from. But there's another class system emerging, which is the class of how much attention you get, how much fame you have, 
Now, back in the day, it would be such that you are famous and there's this very small amount of people that are famous because they're in the movies or in the media. But now because of the internet, anyone can be famous and apparently everyone can be famous. Any girl who has some good looks can build a following on Instagram enough using her beauty, using her image, her appearances, to gain a job, an income as an influencer. And that is one form of the higher society or the high class of our day. And just like people look at Dorian Gray and say, well, he's a work of art, then people look at these profiles and they say, wow, she's beautiful. And to be honest, I really feel there is a lot of beauty. I'm not against the beauty of appearances. I love gorgeous women. I love good-looking women. But when it's on the internet and when it's within this profile setting... And when it's on these social media platforms, there's something in me that, that, that resists, that cringes, that feels like, what's really going on here? And of course, Dorian Gray, he's a tortured soul. He has these things that gnaw at him. He has these immoral things that he's been doing. These blunders in his sense of self. And it's all reflected, it's all coming through, it's all being expressed in this painting that merges and shows his true face. And yet somehow, he still remains youthful, he still remains good-looking. Now what's the comment there? What is, what is Oscar Wilde trying to say? Is it that if you have good looks, you can get away with anything? If you're good-looking... All your sins will be forgiven. Appearances are the only thing that really matter. And I can't help wonder, what would it be like? What are these what is the inner world actually life like of these these famous Instagram models, particularly the women? Now I'm curious about the women. Because for a woman, the visual how you look, is it's such a central thing to how culture and society treats women. And I don't see any way around this. I don't have any solution to this. The best I can feel to do is say that I acknowledge it. Because I do find women visually attractive. And of course, I've had my adventures of finding what it means to discover other parts of a woman and to see her on a deeper level, and to be able to look at a woman and see something in her which is beyond her looks, that's been quite a journey, and I'm thankful that I've done that. I'm, I'm, I'm full of gratitude to have been able to learn the things that I have about women, and to see beyond the appearances. And my initial reaction to famous, good-looking models on the internet is... Well, for a long time, I was jealous. Like, why should someone be able to get so much attention just for their looks? And that's still, there's still an element of that in me. There's a 
wondering and 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 more broadly there's a wondering like what is their life actually like what are they really like what's really going on and how would i ever know that and then i also have my experiences of actually meeting these women and actually getting the chance to become friends with these women and hear some of their stories and hear what it's like and to interact them with them in the real world this is not on the stage it's not within art it's not the romantic idea it's not the representation it's not the symbol it's the real world and the difference between being in the same room with a human being and looking at their photos on their internet on the profile the difference between those is worlds apart it is worlds apart and we have to be aware of this you have to keep reminding yourself of this so dorian keeps looking at his picture and he keeps having these expeditions into the darker corners of society and he keeps reading this this book and he comes back to really exploring his his modern hedonism as he says and there's this passage here where he's thinking all this through over the years and it really comes out how he feels about these things and I'll read some more passage that that have resonated with me from this book so here we go quote yes there was to be as lord henry had prophesied a new hedonism that was to recreate life and to save it from that harsh uncalmly puritanism that is having in our day its curious revival it was to have its service of the intellect and our and certainty and yet it was never to accept any theory or system that it would involve the sacrifice of any mode of passionate experience its aim indeed was to be experience itself and not the fruits of experience sweet or bitter as they might be of the of the asceticism that deadens the sentence senses as of the vulgar prolificacy that dulls them it was to know nothing but it was to teach man to concentrate himself upon the moments of a life that is itself but a moment there are few of us who have not sometimes wakened before dawn either after one of those dreamless nights that make us almost enamored of death or one of those nights of horror and mishapen joy when through the chambers of the brain sweep phantoms more terrible than reality itself an instinct with that vivid life that lurked in all grotesques and that leads to gothic art its enduring vitality this art being one might fancy especially the art of those whose minds have been troubled with the malady of reverie gradually white fingers creep through the curtains and they appear to tremble in black fantastic shapes dumb shadows crawl into the corners of the room and crouch there 
Outside, there is a string of birds among the leaves, or the sound of men going forth to their work, or the sigh and sob of the wind coming down from the hills, and wandering found the silent house, as though it feared to wake the sleepers, and yet must needs call forth sleep from her purple cave. Veil after veil of thin dusky gauze is lifted, and by degrees the form and colours of things are restored to him, and we watch the dawn remaking the world in its antique pattern. The warm mirrors get back their mimic life. The flameless tapers stand where we had left them, and beside them lies the half-cut book that we had been studying, or the wired flower that we had thrown at the, bu- at the ball, or the letter that we had been afraid to read or that we had read too often. Nothing seems to us changed. Out of the unreal shadows of the night comes back the real life that we had known. We have to resume it where we had left off, and there are steals over us a terrible sense of the necessity for the continuance of energy in the same wearisome round of stereotyped habits or a wild longing it may be, that our eyelids might open some morning upon a world that had been refashioned anew in the darkness of our pleasure, a world in which things would have fresh shapes and colours, and be changed, or have other secret, a world in which the past would have little or no place, or survive, at any rate, in no conscious form of obligation or regret the remembrance even of joy having its bitterness and the memories of pleasure their pain. End quote. So he continues to explore his hedonism and his romanticism and he, he does a whole bunch of things like he, he studies perfumes and he continues doing his music and has musicians come to perform. And he also studies jewels and really gets into these exotic antique jewels of things that were from another time and hundreds of years old and from transported over the world. And he also gets into to fashion and clothing and really fine tunes. And you can imagine a high class person collecting their clothes and really getting into it. So... The years wear on and he, he lives out this, this world within him, this romantic swirling of all these things. And it's so beautiful how Oscar Wilde writes this, this inner churning and these complex ins and outs of the past and the, the morality and how Dorian finds himself. So it is by an off-lucky chance that ten years later, Dorian Gray runs into Basil, the painter. And they recognize each other and they start up a conversation and they're like, of course, it's a very strange encounter. It's a bit awkward at first. And it turns out that Basil is just about to move overseas that very night. So it's his last night in whatever city they are, Paris or London, whatever it is. Oh, no, he's going to Paris in London, I believe, if my trivia is correct. 
It's not that important. So Dorian Gray says, oh, let's, let's have a bit of a conversation. And they talk for a bit. And they go back to his place. And as the conversation unfolds, it turns out that Basil has heard these things about Dorian Gray. He's heard these rumors. And they're not exactly controversies or conspiracies or scandals or anything too serious they're just just things that are dark things that he've been he's been implied in and there's there's a whole range of them and he he couldn't believe them he was so sort of outraged that he he didn't, he didn't understand how these things could fit with the person Dorian Gray for Basil so Basil's Basil's image of Dorian Gray didn't fit with the things that the society and the local community were saying about him or the things that appeared to happen. And it would feel like, one of the things he says, that it feels like everyone that you make friends with or everyone that sort of comes close to you ends up sort of having a dark ending. Either they get into some troubled relationships or they they lose their money or they go off onto something or they have these terrible habits. And even it's implied that he's been seen in this, this opium den. So he's been sort of related to this drug thing. Like, are you in drugs? And it's it's sort of like this old this old confrontation of are you on drugs? Now, that phrase, are you on drugs, between two people who know each other or between family members is a loaded, very dramatic moment. So for someone to hear about that, for a family member or a friend or a community person to hear things about a friend that doesn't fit with their image of them, that is cause for drama. And nowadays, what that means for us is that, of course, on the internet, there's so much more opportunity for commenting and saying things about people. This so-and-so person is a racist. This so-and-so person is a bigot. This so-and-so person is sexist. This person is not respecting my titles. This person is not respecting my image. This person is bullying me. This person is harassing me. This person has said immoral things. This person doesn't have a morality. Now, in the world of the internet, sometimes it feels like there's always someone saying something bad about someone. I'm sure if you... Google my name, there will be something terrible about it. And maybe that's not the case. I mean, there's not really enough people listening to me specifically at the moment. But once you get into a high commentary or there's at least some sort of following or some sort of interest around you, it feels like there's always something bad. And how is it that someone can square this? Like, who are we to believe? Is the general impression of people really what we go off? Is what we hear about a person the same as what our formulation of what a person is meant to be? Or can we, can we, is it anything to go off at all? Because it can't be nothing, right? There's this old thing. Now, now Sam Harris is a classic case of this. 
And he's talked about this at length because it, the way he puts it is he says, where there's smoke, there's fire. Or you'd think so. That would be the logic. And there's the side of, there's the, the arrow of entropy on the side of the people who are slanderous or the people who are making accusations or trying to just talk bad about others because it's always easier to say to, that someone is bad and to appeal to outrage and to appeal to people's sense of, oh, self-righteous, how could he say such a thing? Oh, that's so terrible. Like that emotional response is much easier to stir up in someone than, oh, he's a good person. Oh, he's a helpful person. He's, he's a good in the world. So Sam Harris has spoken quite a lot about this and he's been the, well, I don't know if I can say the victim, but it's, yeah, I mean, the, I don't want to spend too much time on Sam Harris, but he's the person that comes to mind when I'm talking about these these differences of the community, the public sphere or the public conversation, and what can we say about a person? What can we surmise about a person? And there's an easy solution to all of it. There's an easy solution to all of it. When you have met someone in the flesh, person to person, that is what you base your opinion of them off. And when you have listened to someone talk on the internet and you have not met them in the flesh, then it's all on you. Now, right here, right now, with you and me, I have no idea who's listening to this. How you take it is entirely up to you. And at a certain point, we're going to have a conversation about what it means to listen meditatively. And also, we can have another conversation about my sense of who's listening. Because I do have ideas about who I feel is listening to this. And what sort of things and what sort of responses I would like to get. So it's not exactly a, a wipe the slate clean situation. It's a complex web. But really, it should all come back. The, the easy way, the foolproof way is to come back to yourself. What is your impression of someone? What is your impression of person when you're in their presence, not just listening to gossip about them. And that's the logic that Basil has when he meets Dorian Gray after all these years and he's heard all these things. And he tells Dorian Gray, I've heard these things about you. Are you on drugs? All these people seem to go bad when they associate with you. And he says, I don't want to believe them. Just tell me they're not true. And of course, Basil is looking at his face and he sees the pure, young, innocent, youthful Dorian Gray because all his sins have been transferred to this painting that's up the stairs in the locked room under a, behind a cover. So Basil really wants to feel that Dorian Gray is the, the beautiful man that he's always known. 
and he's happy to accept the appearance. And I can think of some people that would say that about a profile. I can see how that would be an ins- uh, a situation where oh, I want to maintain that this beautiful thing, I really hope that how someone is representing themselves on the internet is how they really are. These beautiful pictures of them is really their beauty, and that is their beauty. Please tell me it's true. Please let the representation be an accurate representation of reality. Now, Dorian Gray is a very different person on the inside to what he is on the outside. And he turns this into a bit of an argument with Basil. And he sort of gets a bit up and antsy. And he says, you want to you know who I really am? You want to see the true me? And he takes him upstairs and unlocks the door. And they walk into the room. And there, Dorian Gray pulls back the cover to reveal the painting that Basil had done of him more than 10 years ago. And he sees the Dorian Gray, the the cruelty, the darkness, the sin, the malice, the face that has changed. And in that moment, in that shock, in that horror, Dorian Gray picks up a knife, raises it over his head and plunges it into Basil. And there's a gargle and a gurgle and it's this gruesome, sudden, spontaneous murder. Dorian Gray kills Basil. And he kills him with a strength like, this is what you've done to me. This is how my life has turned out because of this image of me. This is your fault. This is your undoing of me. Look how I've festered over the years. And he kills him. And now Dorian Gray has a dead body in his, in his house. He comes to his senses and he comes out, locks up the door, and, and he spends the night trying to think through what he's going to do. Now, as it would happen, Basil was actually meant to be on the the midnight train to Paris. So everyone's going to be thinking that he's left town for Paris. And it will be some months before people realize that, hang on, he didn't turn up in Paris like he was planned to. And it's going to be very tricky for them to work out where things went wrong. And in the end, it actually turns out that there's this misunderstanding between the train man and Scotland Yard, and they say, well, no, this, this man was on the train, and he's you know, just seen someone in the fog, just a lookalike figure. So he gets away with the grey area of what's happened. And people still talk about it, but it seems like Dorian Gray is off the hook. Now, how does he dispose of the body? Well, there's this character, which is one of the characters from this dark time of Dorian Gray's, which shows up and he's a Dorian Gray calls him up, gets him to come over and he's a scientist. He's a chemist of some sort. So he has the ability to dispose of the body by chemical means to mean to make that it's not traceable. And Dorian Gray blackmails him. And it's not exactly clear how, but apparently this man, it, it, one way of looking at it is that there was this homosexual thing or there was this erotic 
relationship between them. And Dorian, Dorian Gray is blackmailing him to expose this as to if you don't do this for me, if you don't dispose of this body, it's, this is going to come out and it's going to ruin you. But that's not exactly clear. I don't know. Maybe I've got that wrong. Have I missed something there? Can, can a scholar or an academic or an a English lit major please correct me on that? I don't know. Maybe it's just an ambiguous blackmail. It's not exactly clear in it. And, the, and Oscar Wilde has left it to our imaginations for a, for a reason. But the point is that he gets rid of the body. The leads are covered up because he was moving to Paris. And then years later, the scientist, this man who he was blackmailing, actually commits suicide. So there's this inner, there's a correlation there between how the inner world festers the events of your life or the memories of your life and how they can grow into something quite dark and quite evil if you don't, con- if you don't contend with them. So... It appears that he's got off the hook. Dorian Gray is scot-free. And we come back to this theme, which is that if you've got a pretty face, you can get away with murder. You can get away with anything. And maybe there is something to that in these people who have attractive profiles or these famous profiles on the internet. So there's a, another gathering and there's this scene where Dorian is talking to Harry, Lord Henry, and there's this charming scene where the he says, oh, and they're sort of discussing, oh, what happened to Basil? There's all these rumors. And Dorian straight up says, now, what, what if I told you I killed him, Harry? And And Harry's got his his wit and his humor and his own personal charm, his sort of eccentric charm. And he says, wow, that would be fascinating. I would love to meet someone who's actually killed someone. And it's a very, it's a very deep scene where they're interacting and the, the truth is coming out and the truth is on the surface, but it's not believed. I mean, so much in this story is about an underlying happening and having it hidden by the truth. And then in this scene, the, as the plot's unfolding, it's, it's almost like the truth is in plain sight and how someone really is is coming out. And also he's still got his youthful face. Now, this is important that he remains youthful because as, as one night in, uh, in the opium den where Dorian Gray is, is still frequently going, someone recognizes him from many years ago as Prince Charming. And by chance, you know, it's one of the bar ladies or someone, they say, hey, you're Prince Charming. And he runs away quickly. But by chance, Sybil Vane's brother, James Vane, overhears this. And of course, he remembers the name Prince Charming because that was the the leading character in the involvement of the death of his sister, who he vowed to avenge or protect. So he runs after, as, as Dorian Gray runs away from this bar lady calling her Prince Charming, James Fane, the brother, runs after him. And then there's the showdown. There's this confrontation. 
because of course James Vane is a is a strong man and he grabs him and he's in the middle of London and it's late at night he's just taken him out of this opium den so it's a pretty shady place shady things happen and he pulls a gun on him and he says this is it meet your end i'm going to kill you for having broken my sister's heart and for having your involvement in such a way that well, he says it in much better words than I do, of course. He says it. It's all dramatized. Just imagine that it's dramatized. <laughs> he says, because of you, I'm avenging my sister's death. That's the long and the short of it. And, of course, well, Dorian Gray is thinking like, oh, my God, how do I get out of this one? There must be a way out of this. And the way he gets out of it is he says, well, how long ago did she die? And, of course, it's over 10 years. So Dorian Gray says, well, I'm not old enough to have been your man. I'm not your man. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. He's always denying like this. Someone else. You've got the wrong person. And there's this, there's this lot of tension with how can you prove that you're not the right person? And he says, well, look at my face. So James Vane grabs him and then pulls him into the light out of the dark, shady corner and looks at his face and he sees his youthful, young, beautiful, handsome face. And then, he, then he realizes, oh, oh, he, he can't have been the man because he wouldn't have been old enough. The man that killed my sister must be in his so-and-so years, must be in his 30s or 40s or something. I think it's, you know, 10 years after he was 20-something, so 30-something, mid-30s. And he says, well, this man's still got his youth. He's still got his young look, so he can't be old enough. I've got the wrong man. And, of course, Dorian sort of stands up and brushes himself off and says, like, well, well, you, you know, you're a, you're a madman. How could you do this? You know, you've got the wrong thing. Get yourself sorted out. And then he heads off. And as he heads off, the bar lady, well, this is how... Some of the scene goes different ways in different versions, but basically the bar lady comes out and says to James Vane, like, why did you let him go? You should have killed him. And he says, are you sure that was him? And she says, yes, that was him. So James Vane realizes that he let go the man that killed his sister. And there's another scene where Dorian Gray is sitting around with his friends and there's this, these conversations, these charming conversations happening with these people of high society. And there's this moment where James Vane puts his head into the window and it comes out, it's this moment where Dorian Gray realizes that he knows where he lives and he knows that he is Prince Charming and he is set on killing him. So Dorian Gray has this inner guilt now coming out in this character chase of not only is the inner guilt coming to haunt me, but there actually is someone in the real world coming to haunt me. Now, what must it be like to have someone after you to want to kill you? I can't imagine what that's like. It would be quite a stressful thing i think quite a nauseating and tiring thing so dorian gray 
decides to leave town and go out into the country and to visit one of his rich friends. And by chance, again, it seems that Dorian Gray just has everything on his side because as Dorian Gray is out in the country with his friend and they're doing this shooting expedition, they're using guns to shoot rabbits, there's this accident. And it's very well written how this is because it's unclear you know, where, where the movement in the bush is. There's like this movement in the bush and the man shoots and it's this, this, this accident and they think it's just one of the gardeners of the estate of this rich person's place and they say, well, wh- why is there a man here? And, and it turns out that he's dead, so he's killed him, right, with a buckshot instead of going for the rabbit. And, and Dorian Gray is even, uh, uh, there's this moment where he says, oh, don't shoot. And it's like, oh, don't kill the rabbit. I'm afraid of death. I want to be good from now on. I've made this resolve to make peace with my inner self. And yet it turns out that this man has died. And as the plot unfolds, they find out that it's not a gardener. It's actually a sailor. And when Dorian Gray finds out that it's a sailor, he rushes back and he must take a look at the face of the dead body. And once he sees it, he knows that James Vane has been killed. And most likely that he was out there to kill Dorian Gray. And of course, there's all this speculation between the his friend and the and the ground staff and the people of what was he, what was he doing out here, and why did he have a gun on him? Why was this sailor in the countryside trespassing on this high class property? And of course, Dorian Gray knows what was going on, but there's all these. It just adds to the rumors, to the confusion around this person. What is what is this character? Why is there so much, so many strange things happening around him? So it seems like he's off the hook and Dorian Gray makes a pledge to put himself right, to live a moral life, to do whatever it takes for him to come out of his guilt, to come out of his self-pity. There's even a moment where Harry is saying, wow, you're so innocent and yet you have so much guilt why is that and for him it doesn't make sense maybe he didn't see so much of what basil saw but this resolve to hey i'm gonna make things right within myself takes dorian gray and it's too late by this time Things have happened enough in his life that they can't be undone. And he has to live with them. And who he really is has caught up to him. And even if all the external circumstances and characters and situations and chances and dynamics and ins and outs, even if all that is resolved, he's still left with his inner world. He's still left knowing that he has to live with himself and he knows who he is.
So, of course, he decides to go to the painting and destroy Basil's painting. Incidentally, with the same weapon that he used to kill Basil. So he goes upstairs and opens the door and takes a big swing at it, but somehow manages to miss the painting and kill himself. And when his body is discovered, all the sins and all the darkness of his life is transferred onto his face and all his youth is gone. And the painting is restored to its original form, its original glory of the young, impressionable, youthful, innocent Dorian Gray. It doesn't matter how beautiful the photos of you are on the internet. It doesn't matter how much attention you get from your internet profile. What really matters is how you are within yourself. And the truth is that you know how you are. And what your life is like, the events that shape you, the relationships that you have, they will always catch up with you at some point. The truth will always come out. If not in the external world, then in your interior world. Things always come to an end. Things always come to a fray. And it's not that books are always a bad influence. It's not that we shouldn't romanticize. The romantic virtues are important. We do need to know what's meaningful. We do need to know what's beautiful. We do need to understand youth and art. And we can enjoy a sense of wit. And painting has its place. Painting is one of the joys of life. An appreciation of art is one of the greatest pleasures. It's one of the finest parts of each of our cultures. And acting is paramount to understanding the human condition. All life is a stage. And the world is our audience. And in many ways, we're always acting. And high society, there's a place for that too. The celebration of our beauty, an expression of our best moments. That's really what the internet should be. We should be acutely aware of the difference between that and a flaunting of something which is trying to hide a darker part of ourselves. 
and symbolism, poetry, how it feels to be alive and to express our intimate selves, our inner selves. These are all positive things when done in a fruitful manifestation. So this has been our commentary on Pictures of You and Dorian Gray. We'll finish with a few moments of silence and just let the ideas we've talked about here percolate and bubble around for a bit. And if it's comfortable for you to do so, close your eyes, sit for just a few minutes, and that's all I have to say for now. <laughs>